We've been thinking a little bit about that. We've been thinking a little bit about that reading that um, Sheila read to us um, just a little while ago. So let's pray and ask for God's help to do that. Father, we thank you for um, your word, the Bible. We thank you that it's there to teach us, to help us um, know you, to understand what you're like and what you want for our lives. Amen. So, um, earlier on in the service, we um, baptised um, Mason and Hudson, and um, it's a great celebration, a great thing to do, but you might think, well, isn't it a bit odd? Why do we have this sort of strange sort of ritual or ceremony where we, we, we grab a baby or a child and we, we pour water over their head and we say that's something special? I mean, I guess that um, Mason and Hudson's parents pour water over their heads quite often, at least I hope so, um, and, and bathe them and clean them all the time. What, what is baptism all about? What, why, why is it important? Why does it matter? Why over 2,000 years have Christians seen baptism as the, the sort of initiation ceremony to coming to faith, becoming a Christian, becoming part of God's people, God's church? And I guess if you look at the New Testament, the, the, um, the second part of the Bible, there's, there's three reasons that are given. Well, four reasons. First of all, Jesus tells us to do it. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism involves pouring water, but actually what's really key about it is this identification with the God of the Bible. And today's Trinity Sunday, we remember God is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the name of God. And today we baptize Mason and Hudson into that name. We're identifying them with the God that the Bible shows us. But there's more to it than that. Um, baptism also, obviously, is a symbol of washing. And it reminds us that when we become Christians, when we trust in God, our, our sins, our guilt, our shame before God is washed away. We're made clean and pure in his sight so that we can approach him and have a relationship with him. It's also a sort of kind of symbol of dying and being born again. So going under the water is a symbol of dying and coming out the other side is a symbol of being born again. And it reminds us that when we become Christians, when we put our trust in Jesus, we are kind of born again. We come, have a new life, a new way to go. But actually, the New Testament also links the idea of baptism with some stories in the Old Testament. So in 1 Peter, it says this, in the ark, talking about Noah in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So let's think about that story very quickly, um, the story of Noah. Um, do you know the story? So God, God comes to Noah and says, look, you're the only good guy around here. Everyone else is really, really wicked. I'm fed up with them. They're so horrible. I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to send a flood. But I want you to build an ark, and in the ark, take your family and some animals from each type of animal, um, and you'll be saved. So Noah builds the ark. The flood comes. They go into the ark. Um, the waters rise up, kill everyone else. Noah's saved. Um, the waters go down, uh, and Noah's saved through water, literally. And God afterwards enters into a new kind of relationship with Noah and all people after him. And he says, I promise that I will never again bring such destruction on the earth. And he gives a symbol of the rainbow as a reminder, as a symbol, as a sign of that promise, that covenant um, with Noah. So in the story of Noah, Noah is saved through water by trusting in God and enters into a new kind of relationship with God, a new kind of identity. 
Now, that brings us to the story of Exodus 2. Because in a way, Moses, as a baby, is saved through water and is given a new identity. I don't know if you know the background to, to Exodus 2. You need to read Exodus 1 to find that out. But um, God's people, the, the family descending from Abraham, are living in Egypt. Uh, and they begin to grow in number. And um, the Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, decides that they're a risk, that these, these people could rise up against them. And so he wants to do things to oppress and stop them growing in number. And so he starts off by um, giving them forced labor, hoping that will force them to sort of reduce and give up. But that doesn't work. And so then he starts doing more drastic measures. He calls in the two midwives for the Hebrews or the Israelites. And he says to them, when a new baby boy is born, I want you to kill him. Let, let the girls live, but kill, them, kill the boys. And the, the two Hebrew midwives go away, and it says they feared God more than Pharaoh. And so rather than killing the boys, they let them live. And when Pharaoh said, why aren't you, why aren't you killing the boys? They came up with a sort of strange excuse. Oh, these Hebrew women, they give birth far too quickly. We're never there in time. A bit of a silly excuse, but somehow it works. Pharaoh's thwarted by these two women. And then Pharaoh comes up with another plan. He orders all his people that when a Hebrew baby boy is born, to throw that baby boy into the River Nile. Hoping, obviously, that he would drown, they would drown and be destroyed. It's a kind of oppression that you might think, well, who's going to do that? Well, only last century, the Nazis, in the same kind of way, tried to wipe out the descendants of the Israelites, the Jews, in Europe. And we all know the stories about that and the horror about that. There's a bit of irony, irony in all of this because um, Pharaoh says, kill the boys and let the girls live. But actually in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, um, the Hebrew men are pretty useless. Or they don't do anything. We're not told much about them. All we're told about is this Levi who um, gets married and has a child. There's not much involved in that. Actually, the heroes in chapters 1 and 2 are all women. You have the midwives in the previous story. And in this story, three women are responsible for this baby boy surviving. Let me just quickly take you through that. So first of all, there's his mother. And his mother looks, gives birth to this baby boy and looks at the baby boy and says, wow, this is a beautiful baby. Don't, don't all mothers do that? Or most mothers do that? He's a beautiful, wonderful baby. Actually, in the, old, in the Hebrew original language, the mother literally says, this boy is good. And it's a phrase that echoes God in Genesis 1, the start of the creation, where he makes his creation and says this creation is good. And his mother tries to hide the baby boy to protect him from Pharaoh and being thrown in the Nile. But as he gets older, it's a three months, she can't protect him anymore that way. And so maybe out of faith in God, maybe knowing the story of Noah, she decides if God can save Noah, through an ark, through a boat in, the, in water. Maybe God can save my son in the same way. And so she makes this basket, she covers it in tar. Um, and again, in, in the original language, the, the word for the basket is ark. And it's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis when it talks about Noah and the ark. It's the only other time it's used in the Bible. So really, it's, it's saying she built a little ark for him, a little baby ark. And she put the boy in the ark. And she did what Pharaoh said. She threw him in the Nile, but in the ark. 
The mother's faith was trusting that maybe somehow God could save this baby through water, just as he saved Noah. And then there's his sister. And his sister comes and she watches the baby boy. She watches the, the ark floating in the papyrus bushes. And actually, this sister, her courage will help save the boy. Her courage later on in the story will see that they're staying there with him, stepping in at just the right moments is one of the reasons that he will survive. He lives because of his mother's faith and his sister's courage. And then comes Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you probably, you've read, we've just heard the story read to us. You may well know the story from Sunday school in the past or a children's Bible. You know how it ends. But actually, if you're reading a story for the first time, this is a moment of great jeopardy. Here is the baby floating in the papyrus bushes in the edge of the River Nile, trying to save him from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, trying to save him from drowning. And who comes along? Pharaoh's daughter. What do you expect to happen? Isn't Pharaoh's daughter going to do what Pharaoh wants? After all, she's part of the family. She wouldn't want to cross her dad, not only because he's a dad, but because he's the most powerful man in the country. Surely the Pharaoh's daughter coming along is going to be a bad thing for the baby. And so she comes down to the water, and she's got all her attendants with her, and she sees the basket, and she sends one of her attendants to go and get it, because she wouldn't do that herself. And the attendant brings it, and she opens the basket, and there in the basket is this baby crying. What's she going to do? She's going to chuck it in the water? like her dad says. But it says that she saw the baby and had pity on him. She had pity on him. And then she says, this is a Hebrew boy. And that statement could, be go, could go either way, couldn't it? In saying this is a Hebrew boy, maybe she's acknowledging that this is one of the babies that my dad says should be thrown into the water that should be drowned. And we're left with this sort of question, what's she going to do? Is, is her pity for this baby going to win out, or is her obedience and fear of her dad going to win out? And it's at that point that the sister steps in, and this is where her courage really comes in. She steps in, risking everything, and says to Pharaoh's daughter, maybe spotting the pity in her eyes, and says to her, why don't I go and get a Hebrew woman to look after this baby boy? Pharaoh's daughter could have her arrested for making such a suggestion because she's suggesting to Pharaoh's daughter that she disobey her father. Who's going to win? What's going to win? Her, her pity or her following her father's ways? But the pity wins out. She agrees to send for a Hebrew woman to look after the child and of course the sister goes and gets the boy's mum. And not only then does she show pity, but she also shows great generosity. She actually pays his mum to look after him. I mean, sometimes if you're bringing up small children, you know how, how, much, how costly they are, how expensive they are to look after. It'd be great if someone offered to pay for you, wouldn't it? You know, Prince Charles came along and says, I'll, I'll pay for you to look after your children, Hudson and Mason, you know, <laughs> I'll pay for it. That'd be great, you know. There's a real generosity in what she's doing here. But then she also, as he grows up, 
adopts him. She brings him into her house, into the Pharaoh's household, and makes, her, makes him her son. And she gives him a name, Moses. I drew him out of the water. As you know, Moses goes on to be God's leader of the Hebrews. The leader who, with God's help and strength, will defeat Pharaoh, defeat Egypt, and bring Israel out to safety. And in a way, this story of Moses being saved through water and giving a new identity in his adoption, giving his name with the, with, by Pharaoh's daughter, is a pattern that is followed by God. In a way, Pharaoh's daughter takes the part of God. Like the midwives before her, she's fearing God rather than Pharaoh. She's siding with the Hebrews rather than her own people. And yet, in so doing, she acts as the God of the Hebrews acts, and the God of Hebrews will act. So as you go through the story of Exodus, it says that the people of Israel cried out, just as Moses, as a baby, cried when he was in the basket. And notice that in the story, Moses does nothing. Babies are useless, aren't they? They don't, they don't do anything. You ask them to do the washing up, you know, no hope. Cook for you, no hope. Get the clothes, hang the clothes on the line, no hope. Pay you for their food, no hope. They're useless. <laughs> Moses was useless or feeble or weak. He could do nothing to save himself. He was completely reliant on these three women to bring about his salvation. And Israel, as slaves in Egypt, were in the same position. They could do nothing to bring about their salvation from being slaves in Egypt. And they cried to God. But God could do everything. And God, in his pity, came down, it says. He heard their cry. And later on, he calls Moses as a man, a much older man. And he tells Moses, I want you to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, and basically God goes to war with Pharaoh and um, sends lots of plagues. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let them go, and finally lets them go. Then they come to the Red Sea, but Pharaoh's changed his mind, so he brings a whole army to try and attack the people of Israel to completely wipe them out. And they're trapped between the army and the Red Sea, and God says to Moses, cast... Hold up to your, your um, staff before you, and I'll make a path through the sea for you. So he does that. The waters part, and the people of Israel go through the sea on dry land and come out the other side. And the Egyptian army follow them. And as the Egyptian army follow them, once the Hebrews are safe, the waters pile back on and drown the Egyptian army. Just as the Egyptians are trying to drown the, pharaohs boy, um, the Hebrew boys, so God drowns the Egyptian army. God has pity and saves his people. But then also, he is generous to his people. He gives them a new land, a beautiful land to live in. And more than that, he gives them a new identity. He adopts them as his people. One part of the Bible actually calls them his son. He gives them a new identity, a new purpose, a new way to live in the Ten Commandments and the law. And so Israel is saved through water and given a new identity. And this story as well is linked with baptism in the New Testament. So, actually in, two, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul talks about baptism 
about the fact that Israel were baptized through water into Moses. He's linking the baptism of the New Testament with the start of Israel's life as they came out of Egypt. And for us, God has pity on us as well. He sees us in our need. He sees us caught up in doing all kinds of wrong things, all kinds of wrong thinking. He sees us caught up in hurting one another and hurting his world. And he wants to condemn the wrong things we do, but he still has pity on us. And so he sent his son to die for us on the cross and take that condemnation himself. Jesus died for us because of God's pity for us to save us from our sins. If only we'll trust in him and follow him. And he doesn't just save us from our sins, he's generous to us. The Bible calls that grace. He gives us new life. New life now, a new purpose, a new way to live. The Holy Spirit in our hearts to help us live a better way. And the hope of eternal life forevermore. And he adopts us. He calls us his sons, his children. He teaches us to pray to him as our father in heaven. In the baptism, we baptize Mason and Hudson into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're being gifted the opportunity for a new identity, a new identity in God, a God who will give them perfect life forevermore, a God who will take pity on them and forgive them for their sins and rescue them from that. But they need to trust in him and seek him in their lives. And each of us need to trust in God and seek him in our lives if we're to receive the gifts he wants to give to us. Just like the Israelites had to choose to follow Moses and leave Egypt, we have to choose to leave the ways of this world and follow Jesus today. We may receive that pity and mercy from God that grace and generosity from God and gain that new identity in him. Will you choose to follow Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these stories of salvation in the Bible. And we thank you that you are the God who saves. Help us to trust in you, not trusting in our own strength or goodness, but trusting in your saving power. In in the death of your son and his resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen.